Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour live from Charleston Wine and Food. My name's Kat Johnson, and we are broadcasting live today from the Le Creuset podcast studio at the Culinary Village at Charleston Wine and Food. Make sure that you go to heritageradionetwork.org slash charleston2019 and see our full interview lineup. And tune in all day today until 5 p.m. We're going to have interviews until then. Uh, coming up next is very exciting. We're going to have some Le Creuset friends coming to talk to us, Tiffany Theason, as well as Nate Collier from Le Creuset. So stay tuned for that. Um, as you can probably guess, Le Creuset is supporting our content this weekend, as well as our friends at the Julia Child Foundation, and we're so grateful for them for making our content possible. Okay, this is one of my most highly anticipated conversations of the weekend. We are joined by Robert Stelling. Welcome, Robert. Hello, hello. And the Lee brothers, Matt and Ted Lee. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks, Kat. So, talk to all three of them. Robert has been on our Charleston Wine and Food coverage three years in a row now. So we've covered some, uh, covered a lot of ground with Robert. I spoke to the Lee brothers at Fireflower and Fork in Richmond, Virginia last fall, which was a really fun chat. So I highly encourage you to go listen to interviews we've done in the past. And now we want to jump into some pretty specific conversations. Guys, let's start with the event that you all did together about a month ago right in the same square, right? Was it, was it in Marion Square? Yes, yes, it was on the other side, the um, west side, um, under a tent, just like this one. Um, and it was, uh, it was a food demo, a very traditional food demo thing, the kind you used to see in festivals like this, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, but it, the context was this huge, like bigger than this one, I think, um, wildlife festival. 40,000 people, um, all really grooving on um, dogs and conservation to varying degrees. And, and um, wildlife art, like decoys. Um, paintings of ducks on a log. Um, camouflage. You need a couple Cam of those. Camouflage. A lot of camo. It's a really interesting festival in that it's kind of like the field and stream crowd meets the garden and gun crowd meets Duck Dynasty. Ooh, are there a lot of beards? Uh, a lot of beards and beards, camo. A lot of camo and just a ton of great people from th throughout the South. And uh, it's a festival that's been running for at least 20 years. Yeah. So older than this uh, food and wine festival and just very well established in the area. You know, people put it on their calendars a year out. Mm. Um, but what's exciting is that two years ago we were handed the reins of the, f the food demo tent. You know, the, the one corner of the whole festival devoted to food, Ted and I got to pick the chefs and farmers and producers that we put on stage over a three-day weekend, 18 hours. And, and, you know, Robert's always top of our list. Um, ours, too. He, oh, thank you. He almost always says no. Yeah. And this year is a tough get. <laughs> We're so honored that you join us, Robert. Uh, I didn't say yes this year. My daughter said yes. <laughs> See, yeah, tell us about so it. So we used that's his, how we get uh, to daughter him Carson through Carson. The soft, <laughs> the soft underside. Um, Carson um, uh, is getting into babysitting, and I have three little boys. And she came over to babysit um, on a couple of occasions, and I just started this conversation about what would it take to get your dad on stage, and um, she said, "Well, you know, I'm studying." the theatrical arts in um, high school and so 
you know, this is a natural for me. And I said, well, gosh, we really love having um, family teams up on stage. Um, never a solo chef on stage. You never want to do that. Certainly not for an hour. But anyhow, it wrote itself. It was perfect. Thank yeah. you, Robert. Yeah. Well, she's she has the professional training, so it was very helpful. You have different professional trainings. Yes, but they, you know, the the subsets kind of you know, intersected. So yes. it, it was so, nice to share that moment with her. So what was the demo that you did? We demoed Shadrow, which is a, a local delicacy. Um, that's in season right now, and um, it was fun to do. It's kind of offbeat and not very Instagrammable, so uh, it, it was a lot of fun to do. It's highly Instagrammable. It looks so gory. It, when it's raw, it's got like veins, like you know, wrapping around it. It looks like a, an organ that you're not quite sure what it is. It could be human. Um, <laughs> It and it's, to be and it's very red. It's like the deepest red you can get before you get to a gemstone. Yeah, can you, know? you like describe it a little bit more too? If people have a connotation in their mind about roe, like caviar that you get from Russ and Daughters, how does it differ from that? It's like torpedo shaped, but two of them bound together. It looks like a sausage, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Tapered or sausage. A kidney with veins on it. A kidney with veins on yeah, it, squished, right? Squished out kidney. And with it's veins filled on with it. very small <laughs> eggs. It's, don't don't visualize salmon row. Yeah, they're like much smaller. Big poppers. These are tiny micro eggs, and so it, it when you you can almost be fooled into thinking it's um, like flesh or liver how, or something. Actually, because Robert, how how heavy is like an average shad row? Oh my gosh, I don't know. It's been years since it's I've, like I've weighed them. Probably right. is, is it like? No, eight ounces? Half, half a set's probably about three and a half, four ounces maybe. Yeah. So, so like six, yeah. seven, eight ounces. And, and flavor-wise, it's very rich. You know, it's very... Uh, what, how would but you describe the flavor, it's Robert? it's not like salmon eggs. It, it has a more neutral yeah. fish egg kind of it, approach. It's really rich, but it's a, a delicate fishiness. Um, and, and the texture has just enough crunch to it still. Um, all the little eggs and stuff, so well, when it's soft were, and kind of grainy at the same time. So as he was sautéing it in the pan on stage a few weeks ago, um, uh, some of the eggs that get loose will get to a stage where they kind of pop like popcorn and splatter grease and stuff, and it got exciting. The cooks love that at the restaurant. They have to wear long sleeves during shad row season. That's so fun. Um, but it's it's cool. What was cool and what's always cool about doing collaborations with Robert is that he always has great ideas for familiar ingredients. Um, I mean, this is something that, that we've known for a long time because you opened your restaurant in 96 or 90? Yeah, 96. 96. 23 years. And remember, we did the, the chef column for the New York Times with you in maybe 2002 or so? And it was four different columns, four different recipes, and they were super original uses of ingredients you're familiar with, like creamed collards was one of the recipes. Each column was devoted to a recipe, and it was like creamed collards, and it was like the first time anyone had thought of that. I mean, probably not, but it, for, for a mainstream audience, yes. It was yes. fresh. It was fresh, new idea. Um, there was another cool shrimp and okra beignet where, like, you know the sliminess of okra that everyone hates? 
he was kind of like using that in the beignet, like that sliminess becomes the batter. When it hits the fryer, it gets it hits its the egg fryer, yolk sort of crispiness. It gets egg, cr- egg white, yeah, I'm the, sorry, the, egg white. The, so it's like crispiness, the yeah. Slimes the starch, and yeah, so you use that as a Yeah, the slime becomes starch. And so that's the kind of thing we look to Robert for these like genius, not like, you know, this isn't tweezer food, this is like easy food you can make in your home, but blows your mind because you've never encountered it. It's like those hacks. Like, everyone likes to use the term hack now. It's like something that seems sort of obvious, but not everyone can come up with it. So he did that with the shad, too, right? Yeah. Um, Because he, you know... What you cook up? Uh, Egg salad. Egg salad. Shad egg salad. A brunchy scramble, basically. Yeah, yeah. The the scrambled... Bacon. Yeah, we're doing that for the festival this weekend. So really, yeah? all, all oh, weekend cool. at the restaurant. So yeah, well, you know we oh, wow. always stop in. So yep, we'll see you yep. there. Get, well, get it's an exciting time of year because um, you have to understand that the shad fish is uh, the world's largest herring species. It's big and it's oily. Okay, so I was going to ask because like the shad scramble, like when I think of like caviar and eggs, I do kind of go to like Russ and Daughters, sort of it's sort of Jewish, and then making it. That it's a herring kind of makes a little bit of sense. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done in this realm, like pickling shad and stuff, right, Robert? I mean, the flesh is considered garbage because everyone's so fixated on the roe. I think Charleston is probably the only place up and down the eastern seaboard where the shad um, migrate and spawn where the actual fish itself is consumed and sold in fish markets and valued. Um, it's very bony, so it takes a lot of labor to debone it and to make it sort of home-friendly. But um, it has a lot of value because it's so um, beautifully oily. It takes salt and smoke really well. Um, it, it goes under a broiler beautifully, and the skin blisters and browns and bubbles. And um, you can do some great things with it. And it's probably a dollar a pound. They're giving it away. Um, and it looks like farmed salmon raw it has that level of veining in it of fat it's like you know almost like a zebra stripe um traditionally they would um, plank roast it by the riverside big big uh fires and just nail the uh shad to the planks and stick them in the sand and let them roast right next to the fire and get a little smoky but it would cook it really well done so that you could eat it bones and everything so you didn't have have to bone it that way this is a native food. I mean, it's indigenous to this region. It goes all the way up the coast. Um, the Hudson River has a shad run that'll be in like another month or so. There's some beautiful old archival photographs of shad fishermen in the Hudson River with the George Washington Bridge as a background. I want to hear about, there were two recipes that he made. He did like a shad egg scramble, and then it was two sort of riffs on eggs and eggs. And then there was a shad egg salad. And I'm just curious, like, from your, you're very creative and, it, you know, it, you, you sort of make connections between things that people otherwise wouldn't. Where does an idea like shad roe egg salad come from? Well, you know, working in Charleston and working with the, the pantry here, you kind of have a limited number of vegetables. Kind of, I always say it's the same dozen vegetables or so, eggplant, okra, and everything. But you know, for, I've been at it for 23 years, so you know, I, I kind of really drill down the same place for a while, and 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 
sometimes you know, those, those those kind of really basic simple ideas you know once you get get a lot of stuff stripped away and you you've got building blocks and you're like oh i can stack it this way you know it's like here's eggs here's shad they go together well here's a you know egg salad here's a you know here's a deviled egg and you just kind of keep keep going with that so it comes out of a almost like a boredom or frustration with the conventional ways in which certain ingredients are deployed right i mean well you know we, we, it's like what else chefs can I today do there's with so much you know available to us and you know you just keep bringing in new stuff all the time you never really get to explore mm-hmm. you know something something yeah you know you know when you get really bored with it then you're coming up you know then you come yeah. up with new ideas you know like limitation breeds creativity yeah yeah, yeah. you know i mean that, that that are different you know yeah. you know i can think to add something you know the, the new the latest trendy ingredient to everything or you know right. i can think about what these you know you know, traditions are and, and why, you know, why things grow together here and they complement each other and, and use those. In, in Do these ideas come to you in the middle of the night or um, in the, no, thank God. the test kitchen? <laughs> um, mostly in the test kitchen. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I usually have to face a, a brunch menu every week and that's usually when you know i plan Innovation out strikes yeah yeah i always say there's there's <laughs> like, three days to the week brunch yeah. the day after brunch and the day before brunch what's the weirdest mimosa you've ever served at your restaurant <laughs> um i did a prickly pear cactus mimosa once i there don't think go. i there really served it at the restaurant but we did uh-huh. it for some events that were uh, really it's got that's good cool. color if great you know, color yeah. Yeah. yeah it was it was a it was, that was instagram i'm super bummed because uh our prickly pear harvest point was the um ornamental um, front scape of a bank parking lot on highway in West Ashley on Highway 61, and they completely tore it out. So we don't get prickly pear anymore. Talk, talk a little you, bit more about that, because you guys do a lot of like foraging around Charleston, and you, you find I mean, some things in some It's so funny, because we don't call it foraging. We just like look over our shoulders and just food. get it. It's finding. It's yes. like, it's finding. It's, it's, <laughs> no one should it's spend, pre-dumpster diving. It's free stuff. No one should spend cash money for rosemary in this town. <laughs> there's, it's that's like so true. There's out too much the rosemary everywhere. So many places. But there's, um, you know, on private property, there's a lot of like, we just had lunch with our friend Anne the other day and her grapefruit tree is producing so much fruit right now. She can't give it away. She literally has like buckets on her doorstep and she's calling everyone she knows saying, come pick up grapefruits because if she doesn't pick it, it drops on the ground, her dog eats it, comes in the house and vomits it on the rug. Nobody so wants that. It's nobody wants yeah. that. Right. Um, it's, it's heavy with fruit, like yellow grapefruit. I don't know oh, what wow. variety. It's some, you know, yard variety. The tree's probably 20 years old. And it simultaneously got last year's season's fruit, and it's blooming now. So it smells like this so tropical garden. Well, there's a lot of, you know, fruit trees in Charleston Gardens, but so many of them aren't native and stuff, you know. The, right. There's pomegranates. Yeah. I got really native. excited about Fig. persimmons. Right. Went Citrus running over there native. one time yeah. to find a... Was a they were a Japanese yeah. yeah I was like oh, um, yeah they're the na- <laughs> native persimmons are few it's interesting to untangle like what is native and what the Kusabo tribes of this region might have worked with four or five six hundred years ago shad of course right um, but um, the native persimmons are super tart and bitter and small. And the ones that are prevalent in the markets today are bloated and giant and watery and don't really have a lot of bite to them. Um, 
but there are things like that most people would miss or consider a weed like Smilax vine, um, whose tender shoots like taste like a better version of asparagus and um, grow on the sand dunes and have a little bit of salt to them and like are really fantastic, but they'd never make it to a restaurant setting because of the labor involved in selecting for the tender shoots and just scrambling around the dunes. Yeah, you have to be careful where the dune, you can go on the dunes. True. Yeah. True. Well, that kind of makes me think of, this is a bit of a tangent, but thinking of someone scrambling around dunes to forage ingredients that aren't common on menus like makes me think of Noma and how Renee mm. Redzepi was able to do that and bring a lot of attention to certain ingredients that were not common. Do you think that a restaurant or a chef like that could exist in Charleston doing similar things or would they run into too many private property, government regulations, you can't do that? Well, if you get a chef doing that kind of activity, inevitably the next step is to encourage some uh, entrepreneurial, free-thinking young farmer to cultivate that thing or to create an arena where it could be done on a sustainable level. Uh, I'm, I'm not concerned about the gold rush of Smilax causing the dunes to be stripped. Like, yeah. it's, the work is too hard and the value is just not that great. Yeah. Um, I mean, I which think... Which is fortunate. I've never been to Noma, so I can't speak from experience, but my sense is like, I'm not sure that we have a restaurant here that has that mission and that that heat-seekingness that, I mean, isn't it, it's like a thousand dollars a head experience. Right. And that piece doesn't really exist here because I don't think it makes sense in the context of this place. You know, I mean, I think it makes make sense a in beach Copenhagen. Town, a leisure town. I mean, we're we're a beach town, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to the beach tonight. I, I think, so, I think yeah. it would be Good. tough. Um, you know, just uh, you know, uh, there would be a lot of government regulations. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's gotten a lot better, and, and the uh, health department runs foraging classes and things like that now. Oh, wow. so, yes, there's a certification in mushroom foraging, and um, yeah, That's but it would still be a tough tough job to to you know keep that going although and make you know, it legit. Charleston has such a great growing season mm -hmm. that you know you you pretty much have stuff year round plus the ocean so. it's a super different climate one yeah. thing you also have to understand about the food world in Charleston is part of the genius is simply its position we're at the southern uh, limit of a lot of northern species both botanically and in terms of fish and we're at the northern limit of a lot of southern species so you have mahi and striped bass and you have Stone banana, crab. Stone crab. Bananas. Banana trees growing. I have one in my backyard. And if we get a severe winter, it'll die back to the ground, but it'll still come up. And we have asparagus, which does slightly better in the north. Um, so there's just a numerically greater array of possible ingredients for a chef to use that are fresh and in your backyard. And so that has its effect on the food scene. You would but, be better doing a restaurant, sorry to take a job, but one based on uh, cultural traditions than, you know, a, a food, you know, niche like, you know, a, a foraged food or something like that. You know, Charleston is such, you know, great history and really that's what sells in this town and that's what's special about it and what people come here for, you know. Well, we do have to wrap up quickly and this was far too short, but last question, rapid fire question. We were for far the, too long winded. No, no, never. Um, 
besides any of the amazing foods and ingredients we've mentioned so far, do each of you have another little-known Charleston ingredient that you would like to see more of on menus or that you think people should come to Charleston to try? It could be a trash fish, quote-unquote trash fish. Uh, I mean, one thing that, that reigns supreme in this town, which I think people outside don't really understand, is uh, sheep's head, mm. the fish the inshore fish like that inhabits the tributaries and stuff and um, saltwater fish that's uh, super tasty. All it eats all day is shrimp and crab and oysters. It's like a robber. It like will invade the poor oyster shell that dares to open while it swims by and um, and so it has this very shellfishy sweet flavor. Um, and yet no one really in New York understands what a sheep's head is unless they're way out on Long Island. Robert? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that they should be serving more shrimp, personally, but uh, there's a lot of shrimp on the menus. But uh, Farm-raised from Thailand? Well, yeah, the local... My favorite. Uh, Wild-caught. <laughs> yeah, the local catch yeah. needs to be promoted, and it's such a, a beautiful resource, and, you know, it, it falls into a, a few dishes and doesn't get you know, always is an appetizer and doesn't really get a lot of play, you know, outside of, you know, the, the ubiquitous shrimp and grits, which I serve a lot of. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's a beautiful thing to, to, to sell. I'd love to see more of it on the menus. I've been seeing some a lot of pickled shrimp lately, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah, pickled shrimp is great. Yeah. Ted? Um, I'm going to go out there and say uh, loquat, which I don't think is something you can get commercially. Um, but it's something that's everywhere in this town. Loquats, it's... Um, it's uh, area, he probably knows tria, the, but, uh, japonica or something. It's native Throwing to, out the Latin. Those are the yeah. yellow, little right. yellow ones? Yeah, yes. the yes. yellow ones. The yellow ones. And uh, they're on the street. You can just put out a ladder and scrape them off the tree. Really easy to get. They don't have a lot of um, meat to them, um, but they have tremendous flavor. Um, and if you find one that doesn't have flavor, just go to the next tree because there's a lot of different varieties within the loquat, and I'm discovering which trees taste best. Um, but it's kind of like the flavor. Imagine a cherry crossed with a tart green apple, and that's about what it tastes like. Sounds Small delicious. yellow flute the size of your thumb. Awesome. Well, thanks to all of you for sitting down and talking about some of the ingredients and foodways of Charleston and the surrounding area that we should all know more about. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Thank Kat. You, Kat. Thank you, Kat. All right, Thanks. this has been Matt and Ted Lee and Robert Stelling. I'm Kat Johnson. Thanks once again to Le Creuset and the Julia Child Foundation for making Heritage Radio Network on tour at Charleston Wine and Food possible. Um, Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit based in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Listen to over 10,000 of our episodes at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.